Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Yanis Alafusus is a Greek businessman and a ship owner. He began his career in shipping in 1981 and has over 40 years of experience in all facets of the industry. In this episode, we discuss why Yanis found a passion in shipping, how he makes good business decisions, the collapse of the Greece economy, and his best advice for future entrepreneurs and company builders. Let's start the episode. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Super happy to have Yanis joining the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. How are life? How is life in Athens and Greece today? We just talked about COVID. Can you give a snapshot into the situation? You were all wearing masks in the start here. We're wearing masks in the in the office. I've t- taken mine off for the interview, um, and uh, for the podcast. Well, let's put it this way: on Sunday, a lot of us were swimming still. Today's a little bit grey, but still warm. COVID is unfortunately getting worse. So um, we have uh, the government, as of today, has shut down all restaurants and bars. And uh, there's a curfew between midnight and five in the morning. Uh, Obligatory 50% uh, working from home, at least. Um, And mask wearing inside and outside everywhere, unless you are, you know, exercising or walking on your own outside. Uh, but if you are in a city with other people on the pavement or anything, everybody has to wear masks. What gives so, you what gives you more stress in life? Uh, owning Panathinaikos or running a shipping company which is family owned? Of course, owning Panathinaikos, unfortunately, yes. Which was an accident. Whilst owning Panathinaikos was an accident, uh, my shipping site was not an accident. I chose it. Can you quickly just use two minutes because there's so many that love football and sports. Can you explain the quotes I read today that you said, this is not fixable, so I just have to leave Panathinaikos? The problems are so deeply rooted that I can't fix it even if I tried? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, after, unfortunately, in the last, not, in the last two or three years, it's been getting better. But uh, let's say for the last 15, 20 years, um, we've had uh, a lot of corruption in football in Greece. And um, this has, uh, if, if you look at the stadiums, uh, they were full of uh, supporters back in the late 90s, even early 2000s. But, but, but the last 10 years, the, the stadiums are empty because nobody trusts the results and refereeing was very bad, etc. However, in the last two, three years, a lot of uh, big effort has been made by more or less everybody and things have been improving. So hopefully, hopefully, football will become more manageable in Greece. Just to, to explain, is this because of the betting? industry that people bet on games no. and oh no 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 i think it was well first of all one big issue is champions league um you know for example television rights for the three or four main big greek teams more, more popular greek teams vary i guess between five and ten million euros a year depending on the position and the team uh whilst income from the champions league is like 30 million plus added revenue from tickets plus 
added revenue from making your players known so you can sell them at a much higher price. So I think that some people are after, uh, they try to win the championship every year in order to make a lot of money. And, and this has happened. And of course, these teams have been much more competitive than other teams. Uh, and this is the problem. And Greece having gone through the, a big recession, a big crisis, financial crisis, um, um, until like, I guess a year ago or so, this has also reduced uh, advertising, sponsors. In general, there's been economic malaise here, which has, of course, reflected on football as well. What's your best time in 100-meter sprint? If I understood my research correctly, you're quite an athlete growing up. I wasn't, no, no, I was not that fast. I was 10.9, 10 10.9 seconds. Was that yeah, the biggest time. hobby, running, or do you like football? I, I still run for exercise, but uh, at that, uh, I didn't like running long, long, long distance when I was a sprinter. But as I got older, I guess I have no choice. I don't know if slower. you... I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the founder behind Nike, but he had so many bad times during building the Nike business that he had to run to like run away from the problems. So he like really enjoyed <laughs> long runs. I don't know if you use that in your life as well, or if the business uh, yeah, is more solid. Uh, yeah, running has been a big, big companion in stress at stressful times. Can you describe that, your family company uh, just to give maybe the listeners a bit of an insight? Because there are many people that are not familiar with the family story and maybe also how you came to be in that story, yeah, a bigger sure. person. I, my father uh, invested, started investing. He was a civil engineer and he had an engineering construction company. But in the, I guess in the 60s, early 60s, mid-60s, he started investing in small secondhand general cargo ships. Um, and uh, as the day, the, by, by, by the 70s, he was exclusive in shipping with a dry cargo fleet. And until 1984, uh, my family was exclusive in dry cargo. And uh, I, 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 for some reason, I always liked tankers a lot. And uh, I started my own business back in 1983, 84 in tankers. And in fact, uh, um, I, I, I was after a small local contract at the time and uh, because I, uh, I had no knowledge of the tanker market and how to calculate costs in tankers, I asked a Norwegian friend, Axel Lawrenson at the time, to help me out and I came to Oslo and we sat down and he helped me calculate the, you know, the cost per ton um, of, the cargo, of the cargo that was to be lifted uh, for the small contract I was after. And I got that contract. And that's how I started my shipping career with chartering small ships, 20,000 ton product carriers, moving fuel. And that was my first entry into, into tankers. And but after that, uh, you know, dry cargo, after the oil crisis of the late 70s, was in a terrible depression, as were tankers, in fact. Um, and I guess uh, we, there was a big company, Japanese company called Sanko. They had like 300 Aframaxes. They went bankrupt uh, in 84, 85. And uh, at that time, uh, tankers, their price was extremely depressed. To give you an idea, an, an Aframax of 10 years or nine years would cost 3 million or below $2.7 million a ship. 
which is absolutely ridiculous if you think about uh, uh, how much they cost now, how much they cost when they were built, um, which gave us an opportunity to invest in, in extremely cheap tankers and uh, start uh, the tanker phase of the company. That's, that's how it's, it all started. When you say you don't know why you had that passion, can you identify that moment? I don't think you just suddenly wake up with an interest for it. No, I thought, you know, dry cargo, I found dry cargo extremely boring, <laughs> uh, slow, tedious, and with very limited upside. In, in dry cargo, of course, uh, there are expert companies who know how to, who have contracts of afraidment and who can combine uh, back holes and front holes, etc., and they can improve the returns. But uh, in most cases, dry cargo, I found dry cargo very boring um, and slow. Whilst tankers, all, I was following tankers, and they were much more volatile. And uh, um, if you got your timing right, and if you if you if, if you if you did your, your if you were good at your, what you were doing, you could have very significant results. Um, and this is something uh, outside, I guess, 2008, 2007, when because of China, dry cargo went absolutely cr irrationally crazy. Um, this has been the case always with tankers and versus dry cargo. So that's I like I like the speed of tankers. I like the speed. In other words, uh, you know, you have very few cargos, crude oil, fuel oil. Of course, they have some differences and. Um, uh, but basically, there's very few cargos, and uh, there's a world scale, which effectively, in theory, uh, equalizes uh, um, the returns on a ship, regardless of which round voyage you choose. I mean, from uh, from a specific loading port to any discharge port, ballasting back. In theory, you should be making the same amount. Um, which also helps things uh, move much more quickly. And also in tank, there's much more, there are many more opportunities to find, to do clever things in tankers when you charter them. My, my best uh, period in, in my business career when, when I was actually actively chartering ships, this was the most fascinating part of my career. I regret, I mean, I, I, I yearn, uh, I miss those days. Now I have, uh, I guess I have a more strategic Road. Yeah. Can you explain uh, your day when your analysis when your analysis are being um, punched in an Excel sheets? What are you looking for? Is it sort of this like macro stuff, and then you make a strategy, or is it volatile? So you day to day change your strategy based on momentum. How would you describe the way you view the world and your strategic well, positions? Okay, uh, the macro. Uh, side of things is is extremely important and this is uh, I think you have to base your uh, decisions on if you sell ships buy ships uh, um, on the macro information that you have um, uh, but outside that there is a micro universe a daily universe which is also extremely important and in tankers if you get the right cargos if you have the right uh, Contacts. If you have good ships that can take it, that any charter will accept or prefer, you have you can really outperform the average earnings of uh, a, a specific type of tanker if you're good at what you're doing. 
So macro helps you decide what chips you want and when to sell and when to buy. Micro is very important also. The daily, day-to-day business is also extremely important in tech. And in high performance, in your mind, I guess you need to know the difference and the synergies between those two. And you have to be able to navigate them both correctly, right? You don't, can you just I mean, be a I, macro guy and just like lean back and relax? Or do you also need to be in the yeah, micro? Yes, yes. The, your returns will be lower, but you certainly can. Uh, I think the most imp- the, the important part uh, for success is not to buy expensive ships and to sell ships at the right time. That's the, the, the most important part. So you can do that and put them on time charter or even put them in a pool or something and not bother with the daily stuff outside deciding when you will sell them. But uh, if you run your business uh, on a day-to-day basis as well, uh, aggressively, I think you can improve uh, your results quite dramatically. If people are not into shipping industry, what analogies can you bring? Do you think it's similar the way the airline industry works or do you feel shipping is one of a kind? Or do you think you can be influenced and inspired by other industries that has the same dynamics playing out? I've I never thought of that uh, actually, but uh, very, very superficially, uh, since shipping is very volatile, I don't know, maybe I, I was going to say hotel business or airline business perhaps where you have seasonality and uh, yeah. you have, uh, let's say, oversupply or undersupply. But of course, in shipping, things can change much more quickly because within two or three years, uh, a lot of ships can be ordered and built and uh, the market can be flooded with too many ships. Now, I think shipping is quite unique. I don't think that there are direct similarities with any other industry that I at least know. When you make tough decisions, how much is data-driven? How, how much is gut feeling, given the experience you and your family have in the industry? Is well, it a combination, or do you feel like this is a data-driven industry and you need to understand no, the numbers? It's a combination. A combination. I think gut is very important, but you have to take gut uh, within the parameters of uh, numbers and reality. So you cannot ignore uh, the... The, the situation, how many ships there are, what season it is, how is consumption of oil moving, uh, you know, how, many, how much oil is on storage, etc. But gut is very important. Could you introdu- introduce the company since it's yeah. on the, the stock exchange uh, uh, in, a, in a good way for people and maybe not too technical at the start so we can bring people along uh, discussing this company? Yeah, very briefly, uh, I'll tell you how we, we, we got to the point of starting the company. Uh, I mean, OET tankers, which was, uh, we came, went to public in 2012, uh, uh, 2018, sorry. Uh, something else started in 2012. Um, okay, we were in shipping since, uh, I said, tankers since, you know, the early 80s. And, um, uh, I had my own business, but I was also working with my father. Um, and what we did basically was follow, um, try to sell uh, ships at a high price and buy ships at a relatively low price. Uh, this was, uh, let's say, augmented by um, when technological changes were happening, 
which were usually driven for, eco for, for ecological reasons. For example, when I started tankers back in the early 80s, uh, ships didn't have, of course, double hulls. They didn't even have segregated ballast tanks. And they had something that I think euphemistically was called clean ballast tanks, which meant that you could use certain cargo tanks where you would load crude to load ballast and you would discharge that ballast legally in the sea. I don't know, you were too young probably, but uh, maybe 20 years ago, if you remember, uh, some of our listeners remember, there was a lot of tar on the beaches, beaches which has now uh, almost disappeared. And that was because ships were actually discharging legally, you know, ballast uh, from tanks that had carried oil in the sea. So back, uh, so in the mid 80s, late 80s, this changed and the ships which had clean ballast tanks were replaced by ships that had segregated ballast tanks, uh, which meant that ships had to be a little bit bigger so they could have more cubic capacity to have separate ballast tanks from cargo tanks. So that was one big st step that we followed. We sold, we sold quickly our CBT fleet and replaced it with segregated ballast fleet. Tank. Uh, then uh, the other big change, and when we got another opportunity to buy and sell ships, was after the Exxon Valdez, uh, um, it was decided that uh, single hull ships were for tankers were dangerous because a simple, let's say, a puncture of the hull would result in very substantial pollution, and ships changed to double hull. Again, at that time, we sold our segregated ballast tank ships. And we started from that time on, uh, I guess early 90s, we started, uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s, we started ordering our own ships. And since then, uh, with very few exceptions, we haven't, in, in the last 15 years, we haven't bought any secondhand ships. We have built all, all our fleet in specific yards. We, we started building our ships in Japan, at the time NKK, today they are then they became JMU, the JMU, another universal. It's a, it's a, a Hyundai, a, um, a IHI, uh, which was a big shipyard, NKK and uh, Hitachi emerged and they've become now JMU. But uh, as the, the millennium changed, uh, uh, Japanese yards started becoming too expensive and also they were not very flexible in, uh, in the designs they were producing, etc. So we slowly moved to Korea and now we build all our ships in Korea. So back in uh, uh, 2018, um, we, uh, I think actually we started 17 in the winter. Um, we were... Uh, we, we knew of the IMO changes that were coming along with 2020, where fuels, the uh, fuel, fuel had from 2020, fuel has to be of uh, very, uh, the content of sulfur in fuel has to be of very low. And uh, uh, we saw a big opportunity um, to expand a lot in ships that uh, are minimizing their consumption, thus minimizing also the um, uh, uh, CO2 that they're... Emissions. Thank you. That uh, uh, um, 
obviously when you burn this oil, you have lower emissions. And what we, we also saw that uh, after 2015, in 2015, you got a first big effort, parenthesis, it wasn't really the first effort. The first effort took place in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, because at the time, most ships had tur turbine engines. And for example, if the LCC was burning 100 and 150 tons a day, what's it burns 40 a mountain ship. Um, and because of the oil crisis, when oil became very expensive, the turbines, which were very good, very efficient, simple engine, engines, were replaced by diesel engines, which is slow-speed diesel engines, what, which is what we have also today. So we had a big move for, for, for economizing consumption then. But after that, the, uh, there was a progressive move as engines were improving. And every year you could get a few grams per hour, per horsepower, less, one gram, two grams um, per horsepower. Uh, but the big, uh, the big change started happening in 2015, when you had the first generation of eco ships, which were burning significantly less fuel than all the ships. And then the second generation, which came after 2017, 2018, which were dramatically more efficient. And on top of that, of course, we had the big issue with scrubbers. Scrubber is a piece of equipment that basically uh, the, the emissions of, from the main engine go through a shower. Uh, of seawater, where the sulfur is separated from the from the from the rest of the emissions, and uh, um, um, thus uh, you can actually fill, you, uh, you 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 can actually uh, burn heavy sulfur fuel with super eco ships that are equipped also with scrubbers, and heavy sulfur fuel is much cheaper than lower sulfur fuel. Um, anyway, so. We saw this as an opportunity, and uh, of course, Norway. The, the big we 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 we, uh, we started speaking with Norwegian investment banks, and uh, we I always knew from the, my from the start of my shipping career that, and of course, I have followed it over the decades that uh, Norway is, is probably the most advanced uh, nation in the world sh shipping wise, and we felt that the investors in Norway would understand what we were talking about when we were talking about scrubbers and. IMO 2020, and we wouldn't have to explain everything from scratch um, to investors who were not familiar with shipping, like the Norwegian market was. So we decided to go to Norway, and uh, we successfully raised some equity. We contributed the ships we had, and we, we expanded our fleet, and uh, we've done quite well, uh, as far as we are concerned. We're quite happy with our performance. So that's how it started. Uh, uh, and now we're in the axis, we're in the axis in, in, in the Oslo stock exchange axis, and uh, I think we'll probably move up very soon. We have all the uh, preconditions to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, of course, COVID came and changed everything. Uh, we had different plans for this year, but COVID, uh, we were going to sell some ships this year, which was something we had told our investors from, from day one. Um, um, and uh, um, we're still doing all right. Can you explain why, in your perspective, Norway is hotspot for shipping? Does this is it a combination of the Viking era, etc., and the right people and the right money, or is it coincidence because you have other nations like Portugal and other that also should be good in shipping based on their history? Why do you think Norway has that position? You think it has? Well, uh, 
history is extremely important. And, uh, you know, whether it's Norway, Portugal or Greece, uh, historical factors have played a very important role in, in these countries having a close contact with the sea. Having said that, uh, for a number of reasons, I guess in some ways uh, there are some similarities between Greece and Norway. Both countries uh, were relatively poor compared with other neighbors or European countries uh, before the discovery of oil by Norway. And I guess a lot of uh, a, a lot of people didn't have a lot of alternatives but to go to sea and to become merchants and to try to uh, expand their business uh, and may and succeed through shipping. So I think uh, uh, this, together with the fact that conditions in Norway, being in, in, in the North Sea, and are very severe, uh, which means that the Norwegian uh, shipping naval people have to be historically very knowledgeable and experienced to survive. Um, when the opportunities came and oil was discovered, all this uh, uh, tradition um, enabled the Norwegian companies to develop a lot of expertise in all different kinds of shipping, including offshore exploration of shipping, exploration for oil, Today, the same thing goes for, um, you know, uh, wind turbines that are being installed at sea, etc. And I think uh, because of this, uh, because shipping was a very important part of Norwegian life and because of the historical um, tradition that Norway had in shipping, I think this is the reason why it has developed so much. In other countries that are wealthier than Norway, or where now with oil, of course, Norway is extremely wealthy, but per capita, but bigger countries with much bigger populations, and they had also different, you could, you know, make ketchup and make money, or make uh, Heinz, uh, Tabasco, I've seen, I'm watching CNN these days with the uh, saga with the American elections, and they have this program for 100-year-old companies, and they said, for example, how the company that makes Tabasco was created, and this is a huge business. I mean, but this became a huge business because the United States was a, is a big country. We couldn't really make a uh, the Tabasco company in Greece with a small population or no women will start from there and export it everywhere else. So I think that the history plus uh, coincidences like the fact that there was a lot of oil discovered in, in, um, in uh, uh, Norwegian waters, I think that this uh, helped uh, create a nation that's very uh, experienced and very knowledgeable in shipping like Norway. I feel like also another thing is another thing is that Norway is also very transparent. Um, you know, institutions work in Norway, which is also extremely important for a business to, for a business for a country to flourish. You cannot have a country flourishing without the rule of law or the respect for the law, and Norway has that transparency in this respect, which is also extremely important. Agree. Uh, you talked a bit about sort of this green opportunity that we have seen in shipping now. We did the podcast with 2020 bulkers, etc. But from your perspective, how do you separate in business sort of this greenwashing? Because green trends come all the time, but there has to be some ca some value to be captured. And how do you define a green opportunity market-wise? Because those are not the same always. Like we can talk about green yeah. trends a lot, but it doesn't mean it's a great business. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
it's a bit embarrassing when you are running a tanker fleet or a shipping fleet to talk about green. <laughs> because at the end of the day, you do burn oil and you do pollute. I mean, something that has to happen, of course, because moves, goods have to be moved. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think the, we're talking about minimizing the energy we use and thus minimizing emissions. And because uh, with global warming, the situation is deteriorating continuously and there is, uh, the world has to take decisions to minimize this uh, development. I think uh, efficient, energy efficient ships, which I think is a, a fairer way of describing ships, although we call, of course, our company is called Oceanis Eco Tankers, which again is a euphemism in my opinion. But in any case, uh, energy efficient ships are becoming more and more important because of that because they emit less, uh, less the fact that we're burning less uh, oil. A lot of the entrepreneurs today, and it goes for myself, are like born global. They doesn't really care where they live. They just want to build stuff if they're interested in entrepreneurship and business. What would they typically find in Greece? If you say it's like some people left Greece, does that mean it's a great opportunity or does it mean it's very hard to build stuff in Greece? How does that component look in your head? Again, uh, because of populism and the socialist governments we had in the past, uh, business, Greece is not a very business-friendly nation, although this is changing quite quickly now. Um, uh, um, there are opportunities in Greece because uh, uh, there are a lot of gaps in Greece, um, from real estate to tourism and from tourism to for example, Tesla is making an investment here. Microsoft is making a, a big investment in Greece now. Uh, there's a lot of virgin ground or uh, there's a lot of room for development in Greece. Uh, I don't know. But, Taxes are but, high. But, yeah, uh, but basically it's not like a, it's not heaven for entrepreneurs. No, it's not like Ireland. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Time is going fast. I just have a couple of more questions. I don't know. You can decide which one you want to answer, but we, we have to touch a bit upon the history. You, there have been some yeah. smart people, philosophers in Greece. Can you just talk about your favorite people from Greece, even if it's philosophy and stoicism, because you have some trends in the world that a lot of those ideas that were born there are coming to life again in like the civilization. Okay. Uh... Modern Greece uh, is, a, is a mirage from ancient Greece. Uh, um, more modern Greece exists because of ancient Greece, because you know nations didn't exist two, three hundred years ago. It was mainly kings and uh, and lords and, uh, and princes who who, who owned the the, the, the the land, and there were just people working the land and. Uh, you know, European history, middle classes developed, etc., etc., and then we had eventually uh, democracy. Now, um, so everything is based on ancient Greece, and had it not been uh, for ancient Greece, uh, uh, if you look at Greek history, Greece uh, effectively um, ceased to exist a few centuries after the Romans uh, took over Greece. And then, of course, the Eastern Roman Empire, which became the Byzantine Empire, effectively was Greece. And uh, it, it, the Greek language was spoken there in Byzantium. And um, mm, uh, 
the, the, the Byzantium was a Christian um, um, empire and uh, um, using the Greek language. So when the Turks uh, took over Greece and other areas, they, they reached Vienna in, in, in Austria and parts of Hungary, etc. All of the whole Balkans. Uh, they they um, 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 uh, Greece survived because of uh, of uh, um, the language, which was a church language. So if you if you had to be an educated Greek, an educated person in this part of the world, your only choice would be uh, learning the Greek language through the church. So effectively. The Greek language and the Christianity kept um, Greece wasn't Greece at the time, so it's difficult to say. Yeah. Kept uh, society, let's say, connected. Exactly. And um, so, in this respect, uh, we owe everything to to ancient Greece. And of course, uh, democracy and uh, philosophy and uh, ethics, etc., were part of the ancient Greek philosophy and. Since modern Greece is a mirage from ancient Greece and not necessarily a good mirage, um, um, a lot of these elements were taken here. Agree. Just one quick final question, Yannis. It's been great talking to you. What do you say to people when they ask you uh, what is your best advice to succeed in business or shipping? Do you say figure it out yourself? It's your own journey, or do you say do X, Y, C? Work hard, like everything else. I guess uh, have a lot of imagination. And, uh, you know, believe that you can achieve almost everything, whether you have money or not, in shipping. But you have to be clever and, and lucky, as we said. Work hard, be clever and have some luck. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.